We're going to get into the teaching of the Word right now. Um, so if you guys wouldn't mind opening your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Why don't we all stand as we read the little section of Scripture that we will be focusing on this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we'll be looking at verse 20. Uh, and then going down to about verse 25. So we're going to read a kind of a larger passage of Scripture. We're not going to get through the entirety of this, of course, today. If you guys know me by now, like, there's no way I'm going to be able to tackle all this. Again, for my defense, I have a little bit of time, so don't judge me. But the point of the matter is, is this will be like a two-part series as we really focus on this larger passage. And hopefully it'll be of incredible encouragement to you guys, as I, I know it was an encouragement to me. So I'm going to read it, and then I will jump in and begin to teach this. So First Peter chapter 2, verse 20, starts like this. But if when you do good and you suffer for it, You endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21. For to this you have been called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are all like sheep straying, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And this is the word of the Lord. Why don't we all grab a seat, guys? So we gather as a church, um, you know, Large portion of what we do, obviously, is get into the scripture, but it's it's far more than just simply having uh, a, a communicator or a pastor or teacher communicate to you guys scripture. Uh, it involves us gathering together as a community, getting to know each other, singing together, lifting up our voices. It involves partaking of the communion, which we will do in just a moment as we kind of conclude. Uh, it involves all of these things. That It's the whole package. It's not just one segment, one element. Um, if it was just simply preaching, I would highly recommend stop coming to church and just listen to a really good podcast because there are a lot better pastors and teachers out there than me. But it is not. It's far more than that. It involves all of these things I just described. And we are swept up into this great movement of God. And that's God's continuing this work. And as mundane as some of these things might seem and as routine as sometimes sometimes uh, things might become or as horrible sermons might be from week to week, the fact of the matter is it's part of the whole, that God invites us into this. And for those of you that might even be finding yourself lacking that sense of like, ah, I feel kind of disconnected or on the outskirts, my recommendation would be, along with what Pastor James was saying earlier, get involved. Get involved. Find some place, some little niche, some little spot where you can be part of a normal cadence of coming in and joining and giving your time and your energy and your effort. Um, that involves getting to know other people, having and sharing life with other people, sharing their burdens, discovering maybe that morning they just lost someone special in their life or they're going through a tough time. So you pause and you stop and you begin to pray. The point of the matter is this, is that part of what it means to be a uh, in community with other people is suffering shouldering each other's burdens, learning to do that well. And that's what I want to really think about today because I think that's what Paul is suggesting here in the little passage we just read. Again, by way of really fast review, we'd say this every single week, but the point of the matter is Paul's writing to a community of followers of Jesus that are scattered throughout the ancient Roman world. And they're trying really hard to follow Jesus faithfully. 
And yet the culture around them, everything around them is pushing back consistently against them. The tide is rising. They're trying to figure out how do we remain faithful to Jesus even in a faithless community. It's one of the reasons why we say that I think there's so much poignancy to you and I as we read this passage in in this entire book. Because this is really where we find ourselves as well. Uh, for the most part, I think our community is filled with people that we just, we want to be faithful to God. I don't think you'd be here this morning if there was at least not some degree of desire to be faithful to God or at least uh, connection with God or at least try to understand who God is. So again, I say this oftentimes every week as well. Thank you for being here. There's lots of great churches in Slow, a lot of great churches in Slow. But the fact that you chose to be part of this community, it's awesome. We are so grateful for you just being a part of and sharing in the community that God's creating here. But with that being said, is that I think what Paul is trying to get at is encouraging these people that are even in the midst of this rising tide of uh, secularism and cynicism and uh, multi-God worship, you know, uh, in terms of uh, broad dynamic of what is acceptable, what is allowable in terms of worshiping God and apparently worshiping Jesus in that culture was not acceptable, which shouldn't be shocking. But these people wanted to remain faithful to God. And, and as a result of that, they were experiencing suffering, pressure is really the idea. Pressure. How do you remain faithful to Jesus even when you feel that angst in your soul of like everything around me is pushing against me and pushing me away from God? How do I remain faithful? And with that comes oftentimes suffering. How do we serve God even when things are really tough and hard? We're, we're not necessarily getting our way. When things are not going the way that we expect, or maybe we put energy and effort in towards certain things and we're not getting the results that we hope to see. And yet, how do we remain faithful even in the midst of that? That's exactly what I think Paul is trying to say here. And to put it in a simple phrase is I think what Paul wants to encourage us as followers of Jesus, as well as what I should say, I keep saying Paul, really Peter, all right? What Peter is trying to write to these people, Paul also writes about this as well, but Peter is trying to write saying, suffer well, so raises the question, what does suffering well look like and how do we actually do this well? And what I think we'll be taking a look at over the next couple of weeks is I think suffering well happens to God's people when, number one, they are anchored um, to God's favor. We'll look at that specifically here this morning. And then next week, we'll take a look at when they become aware of Jesus as their example. That's verses 21 and 23. Jesus as their sacrifice, we see that in verse 24, and then lastly in verse 25, when he describes Jesus as actually being the shepherd, the one who oversees and cares and tenderly uh, uh, protects and carries them, carries you when you're in those moments where things are just really gnarly and hard. So I want to really focus on specifically just the idea of being anchored or tethered, if you want to think of it that way, to God's love. Um, So I want us to even think about that little phrase. Just listen to it again. He says... In verse 20, the latter part of verse 20, he says, but when you do good and you suffer, if you endure. So three words. Number one, uh, do good, and then you suffer. So second word, suffering, and then endure. So those, that combination, I think, is really essential. So what, what happens if you suffer for doing bad? Well, you're just like every other human being then, right? You get what's coming to you, right? That's, that's the big E on the eye chart right there. If you break the law, if you get a ticket, if you violate the law, and you get caught, that's just normal. I mean, that's like sowing what you reap, all right? Uh, reaping what you sow. But you get the idea. The point that I would make is this, is that Peter's saying that what happens when you do good and then you suffer? 
What happens if you're on the job and you're working hard and somehow someone comes to you like, I saw you, you're busted. And you're like, I didn't do it. That's not me. I'm set up. And he says, if you suffer for doing good, that's important. But the word endure is also important as well because you can immediately at that moment realize I did good, but I got busted and I'm in trouble or I'm suffering for this right now. And if you don't endure... Then you can end up burning some bridges, you end up being rude, or end up retaliating, or acting in some sort of a violent outburst. You don't endure. You take matters in your own hands, and then you wreak even more havoc. You kind of complicate things in some ways that are oftentimes can be unrepairable. So I think, again, he's saying, when you do good, and you suffer, and you endure, then this is the important thing. This, this, this combination is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, in the Greek, that's a little bit tricky to uh, translate. In fact, if you have different translations, I'm reading from the ESV. If you have different translations, you'll probably come across a variety of them. So I'll read a couple, two more. Number one is the Amplify. He says this, this finds favor with God, is the way the Amplified says it. And then New Living Translation says, God is pleased with you. The word literally that he uses there is the word charis, charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis. Grace, this is a gift. This is a gift. Um, the way many modern translators would basically identify this, God looks at you favorably. If you want to put it another way, he's proud of you. He's proud of you. If you want to put it another way, he sees everything that you went through. And while you're trying to hold on to character and do it right and walk in a way that's not just simply part of the normal warp and woof of society and culture at large, even if you can get away with it. He says, as you act in a way that is in alignment with the heart and the nature and the attitude and the actions of God, God sees us. He's proud of you. He's pleased with you. I just want you to pause and think about that. Because uh, I think a lot of us, we have a false perception as to God's disposition over us. I think it's pretty easy to kind of get a caricature of evangelicalism or the church or Christianity or even the Bible and somehow fall away or carry away from an image of the Bible or a false reading of the Bible that just says God's really grumpy. He's cantankerous. You never really know what kind of mood he is. He's going to be in. Sometimes he's happy and joyful and just showers the world with like, you know, rainbows and other times he's really angry and grumpy and he's out to cast lightning bolts i I want to suggest to you that is not yahweh that is zeus that is not yahweh that is zeus yahweh we know has been revealed through the person of jesus and what peter's telling us now again you might disagree with what i'm saying or how i'm presenting it this to you but the point that i would make is is your real beef is not with me it's with the text with what peter is saying to us that God looks at you as you suffer for doing good and you endure it. He looks at you with a sense of incredible delight. And the reason why I say it's important to be tethered or anchored to that is that I like the idea of being anchored because you can be anchored to something and yet still drift, right? You can still drift. 
Um, I remember a couple years ago, I went on a surf trip, and uh, we went to this place called Witch's Rock. It's in Costa Rica, or Nicaragua, Costa Rica, somewhere around. I don't know exactly where it's at. Somewhere down there. And um, we were on a boat for two days, and I'd never, ever done a trip like that. It was crazy, and, and I didn't even know what to expect. But I remember one night, we woke up, and, and the boat had just drifted pretty far. And I'm like, oh my gosh, where are we? And it was kind of a little bit foggy, so I had no idea where we were. And the, the captain of the ship, or skipper, whatever you call him, he's just like, it's all good. We're anchored. We're not, we're not, I mean, even if we might drift, and there are ocean drifts that will take you one from one spot to the next. This is part of uh, the, the reality of the ocean currents. But we, we're not going anywhere ultimately because we're anchored. And I like that image because that's exactly what it's like to be a Christian. And what, what I mean by that, there's going to be moments where you will doubt. There will be moments where you question. There will be moments where you are not sensing God's presence. There will be moments when you even 100% just doubt it. Or maybe 99.9999% doubt it. But even there's just a little, even if there's just a tiny, tiny mustard seed of faith that says, but God, somehow I know some way you will be faithful. That's, that's enduring. Even if it's like 0.0001%. He says that, that God looks at that and takes great delight in that. And it's the idea of being anchored. I think for us to suffer well is we have to be anchored to that. Now, what does suffering poorly look like, if you want to think of it that way? Like, it might be good to kind of get a, a contrasting version or perspective of what does suffering poorly look like. I was recently reading a book by um, A.W. Tozer. Some of you guys might be familiar with him. can't remember the name of the book. But in one of the chapters that he uh, talks about the various types of self-sins that we can oftentimes degenerate into or delve into. And he describes these self-sins as self-righteousness self-pity, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love. And he describes really that this is sort of uh, the black hole, if you want to think of it that way. It isn't, that's, that's my language, not his. Um, the, the black hole that oftentimes that type of self-life can just suck us into. And I think that's suffering poorly, to be honest with you. I think when we go through tough times where things don't necessarily go our way or the way that we expected or the way that we had hoped or the way that we woke up in the morning, we, we, we prayed for or longed for or desired for or even worked for. Maybe you went to school and you uh, put in the time and the energy and the money and the effort and yet you didn't get the job that you had hoped or you expected that you were going to get or someone else, uh, you got bypassed and someone else got the promotion and that wasn't on you or you know everyone else in your friend groups getting married and getting pregnant and having children and buying houses and here you are just barely barely still scraping by and that's not how you envisioned your life and a lot of these things we can sometimes have mount up and we get frustrated and i think what can happen in that self-righteousness can arise we're just like i'm better than this i'm better than this self-righteousness is not good self-pity i think is another one i was talking with a friend the other day about the the distinction about this idea of of um grieving somehow some sometimes looking at moments in our lives where we have to say goodbye to or say that was a part of the past or that's something different i think 2020 was a year of grieving it was and maybe even some ways we're still feeling the ache or the um I don't know, the, the, the hangover of that grief of living in 2021, certain things that maybe we once had enjoyed or once uh, experienced, but no longer we're still in this place where we're, we haven't fully uh, reclaimed that or gone back into that. So sometimes grief is an important aspect where we have to learn to grieve well. But sometimes grief, if, if it metastasizes, in other words, it degenerates, grief can degenerate into self-pity. When that happens, I don't know. 
And you need to be really careful. And one of the things I was telling my buddy is that, that sometimes some of the best things that you can have in your life if you find yourself consistently degenerating into self-pity. I know this path well. I've, I've been on that mat many, many times. I know what it feels like. I know what it's, I, I, I know the reality of that. But I also realize that some of the most important and most valuable things I can have in my life to help me combat self-pity, first and foremost, is my wife. As well as other people in my life that I've, I've invited to speak to me, uh, sometimes on painful, painful levels of just, just calling me out. And there's been so many times my wife over the years has just been like, Brian, what's wrong? I don't know. I got this going on and that going on. I just, all I want to do is sleep. So just let me sleep. She's like, you're not grieving anymore. This is self-pity. Let me pity myself, woman. Just kidding. I've never said that. I swear to goodness, I've never said that. But the point of the matter is, is that you, you got to be careful. Number one, you got to welcome people into your life to let them speak sometimes hard truth to you. Number two, you better make sure that if you're going to call someone else, uh, someone else, someone out in their self-pity to make sure that the Holy Spirit has shown it to you because if they are still actually in a status of grieving and you call them out on self-pity, then that could radically impact them in negative ways because there's a healthy season for grief. It can uh, overwhelm them and complicate their life with, with guilt and shame. That's not healthy either. That's not the heart of Jesus. But self-pity, I think, is something that is not suffering well. Um. Self-confidence, you know, pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I'll make my life just count for something. We really, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is we're trying to anchor ourselves to something other than Yahweh. We're part of that just because, I mean, look, I think if we were to look at our culture in, in one word that just I think I would use to describe our, I don't know, post postmodern world in which we live in. Neo-modernity, I don't know what we want to call it. I don't even know what the names of it are for anymore, to be really frank with you. Whatever we would describe is I would say we are an untethered culture. Another word for that is free fall. We're just free falling. And the alternative, I think, is the vision that Peter casts for us. Be anchored to the favor of God. So what does suffering well look like. And I want to end just with something that maybe you guys might be familiar with. There's a, um, I, one of the things I like to do uh, when I'm tired is I'll just, I, I don't know if anybody else does this, and so maybe I'm just divulging too much information, but I'll just sit on the couch and I'll just watch YouTube videos. It's because I, I can't, I don't have enough brain power to like actually get into a show, like even a 20 minute show. I'm like, I don't have enough brain energy. That's how bad I am. And definitely a movie. Like, I realized over the past few years, I don't really even watch movies anymore. I can't sit there for 90 minutes. I got a problem. I got a problem. I need help. Therapy, please. The point of the matter is, but I can watch a three and a half minute video. Multiple three and a half minute videos, right? And and a few weeks ago, I I watched, probably just like many of you, um, uh, America's Got Talent. Um, I'll show you the little photo here. America's Got Talent, this gal, uh, Jane Markowski, I think is her name or something like that. She goes by Nightbird. I don't know if you, if you have not ever heard of her, um, scan this, write it down, check it out. you got to go uh, search it on the Internet, and her story is actually pretty amazing. So um, if you know anything about, like, America's Got Talent or, um, I don't know, uh, uh, 
whatever, uh, American Idol, that's the one I'm looking for. You know that you guys at least know something of the notorious, like, critical ear of Simon Cowell, right? He's not, he's not the nice guy. He's always, always hypercritical of everybody. Well, when she does her debut, um, she sings a song, like, Simon is, like, in tears. He literally can't even talk. He's so choked up in just terms of responding to her. Now, her story is actually fascinating because without going into any length of detail on it, she gets cancer and she uh, has gone through a divorce. Her husband leaves her in the midst of her cancer. And it's absolutely profound. So she gets up there and sings this song, It's, it's Okay. And it's, it's really fascinating because it's kind of the story of her life as she describes over the past year. And if you've not seen it, how many, just out of curiosity, do you guys, anybody seen it? Okay, a couple of you guys, half of you. The rest of you need to just do yourself a favor and go check it out. And I, I want to read just real briefly um, something that she had written in her journal. So she actually has her own little blog that you can check out. It's called nightbird.co. Uh, and uh, she writes on there. And she had written this, like, little journal entry, which I think is so profound. And I'm only kind of giving you little bits and pieces of it. But the entirety of it is, is mind-blowing. It is so good. She's such a good writer. And I, I just think she's, she's someone that boldly stands up for Jesus, even in the midst of incredible, incredible pain. So she, to me, becomes this example of someone that suffers well. Listen to what she wrote. She wrote, I have, can- I have had cancer three times now, and I'm barely past 30. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet God, he will say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. But one thing I know for sure is this. He could never say he did not know me. She goes on to say, she says, I'm God's downstairs neighbor banging on his ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day. Then she goes on to say, call me cursed, call me lost. But that's not all that I am. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Sometimes on days when I'm not sick, I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light and I listen for him. I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't go low enough. And it's true. Look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. I mean, the the fact is, is that here's a gal that has gone through such incredible suffering. And yet she's had this platform like millions and millions and millions and millions of people have downloaded and watched her video. It's mind blowing. And she's so bold and so real and so honest in her wrestling with God and the challenges that she's faced. And yet, all the while, to me, I think this is an example of what it means to suffer well. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you never question God. That's called fakeness. I mean, the Psalms are filled with people questioning, wrestling with the heart of God, the goodness of God. And yet, all the time, coming back to this one thing. You could say they're anchored. To God. That's what it means to suffer well, guys. I think it's what Peter's inviting us to consider. Like I said, the alternative is we just anchor to something else. And if you're here this morning, maybe you are anchored to something else. Then drift is certain to happen. Free fall is certain to take place. Longevity is not a guarantee. But being anchored to the eternal God means our present, our past, as we'll look at next week, and our future are secure. That doesn't mean that we will not have moments where we look like we're going to get very close to the rocks. We're going to dash our entire lives against the thing. Or it doesn't mean that there's going to be moments we're going to wake up and be like, where in the world am I right now? But what it will mean is that even in the midst of currents taking us one way or the next, we have our souls tethered to the one who's unmistakably 
in favor of you. This is how Paul would put this when I'm done. In fact, I'm going to have the worship team come on up, and we're going to get ready to partake of communion together. Romans chapter 8. Uh, some of you are very familiar with this. I'm just, I want to read this over to you guys, over you, and have you listen to this. So how about we all stand as we begin to now transition and move into a time of communion. If you're a parent and you have your kiddos in the back and you'd like to bring them in, if you'd like, it's totally up to you. Uh, you're more than welcome to uh, just have them join you for a time of singing and communion as well. I just want to read Romans chapter 8, just some segments out of this over you and for you to listen to it. This is Paul the Apostle. Paul, like I, like I mentioned at the very beginning when we prayed over Luke, went around planting churches. Paul got into a lot of trouble. Paul found himself in the midst of incredible chaos and hardships and sufferings and whatnot. And yet Paul is this guy that tenaciously kept going back to the fact that he was tethered, anchored to this one who radically is devoted to him. Paul would say this in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. He says, For the creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And then in verse 37, he goes on to say, And all of these things... I don't even have this written down here. I'm going to read it up here. And all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. This, this right here is what kept Paul going and suffering. This right here is what has kept that gal that I just mentioned going, even in the midst of her current battles. This right here, I promise you, I promise you, is what's keeping our brothers and sisters in Christ right now who are in Afghanistan going. In Iran, North Korea, communist China. They can't gather. They can't lift up their voice and do this. They, they can't. They'll get arrested. They'll die. They want to at least prolong as long as they can their testimony without dying. So the point is, is that this, this universal passage right here is what tethers every follower of Jesus to this eternal hope. And if that's you here this morning, like I said, if, if you're not tethered to this eternal hope, my hope would be that you would right now turn to him. It's as simple as you just confessing to God, God, I'm, I'm sorry, I've been tethered to X, Y, and Z. And I want to now turn to you, and you be the one that anchors my hope. So wherever you're at, whoever you are, whatever's going on, as we now go to the bread and the cup, and as we partake of this, it reminds us of the love that God has for us. So as we move now to the very last little movement of our time together here, the communion. In fact, I would even hope to say that everything we do here this morning, doesn't revolve around a sermon. It actually revolves around this little emblem of the bread and the cup. Because it reminds us that it's a sermon that doesn't get us saved. It's the invitation to the table that gets us saved. Jesus, who gave himself for us. So as we sing this last song, as you would like to partake of communion with us this morning, you're more than welcome to. There's some elements in the front right here as well as in the back. 
uh, go ahead and come forward or go to the back and receive it. And we will partake of the communion together and we will call it a day. So let's bow our hearts and our heads and respond. Jesus, right now, we confess sin to you. We confess our confidence and our faith in you. So be the one, Lord, right now that fuels, motivates, strengthens, and anchors our hope.